Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-host S with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Great. I mean, look, the last time we recorded something, my audio couldn't record, um, but this time it is, but it's new because they changed it. Oh, like the program? Why. The program's yeah. changed? I can't Which is stand why. It. it. It needed some sort of an update. Because my laptop updated, and so that's why it wouldn't work before, oh. but now, and now it looks weird. Now it I looks know. different, and it's like, just, don't you understand we're the generation that hates change? Yeah, and by the way, everything's changing all the time, technology-wise. We get forced yep. into these updates, then nothing looks yep. the same as it used to. I'm starting yep. to feel like a nana. Oh, yeah. Every time we uh, we do we log in and do a Zoom... It's like, oh, do you want to use your phone as a webcam? No. No. I want to use the fucking built-in camera as my webcam. Thank well, you very much. You know what? My, my computer started asking me whenever I open up GarageBand, which is how I yeah. record my audio when we're recording, um, it keeps asking me, do you want to record using your phone microphone? And that is the most <sighs> insane thing I've ever heard in my life. Well, that feels yeah. like a downgrade. Like, I understand that maybe, ooh, Bluetooth or whatever, like, it's magical. Sure. Like, I don't think that the quality is going to be good. Are, are are we still at a level of technology where we're like, ooh, Bluetooth? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I guess so. I guess great. so. I think that's great. Where does it it's, go? It's this new, it's the new iPhone update that's like, it. as soon as you do anything with your laptop, it's like, oh, you just want to use your phone for this? If I wanted to use my phone. I'd be on my phone. I'd be on the phone. And I know there are people out there who are like, oh, it's actually a nice feature. I use it. We don't. No. Maybe someday. No. 
And I don't need it's to hear annoying. that there's other programs I could be using to record my audio. I know GarageBand. It's easy and uh, it does the trick. Oh, that's the thing. Once you once you learn one, that's it. Yeah. I don't, want, I don't want anything else. I don't need it. Yeah. I don't need it. Um, it should be noted, I'm a little under the weather before people uh, are like, ooh, she sounds nasal. Yeah, a little under the weather over here. Um, but I got to say... <laughs> I got to just just quickly say, Christy and I logged on tonight and we got into it. There is a photograph yeah. that was taken of me in 2002. And I just we should have been recording like the genesis of the conversation because it truly is the magic of how we get things done. I was like, do you remember that picture of me and Burt McCracken from The Used? that we we took at the Boxcar Racer concert. And she was like, yes. And I was like, as my personal archivist, because Christy is very good <laughs> about keeping track of all of the photos of, of everyone in her life, but certainly for, and I, <laughs> I'm a flipperty gibbet, big surprise. I don't know where anything is. Um, my photos are, <laughs> God knows where. Anyway, and so I, I messaged her about this, this photo and she's like, ooh, I can't find it. That's so weird. And I was like, I guess I should probably figure out what year it was exactly. Within three minutes, I had the location. I had the date of the concert, but it was really a co-pro because I was like, I think it was this concert, November 7th, 2002. And Christy goes, what day did Eight Mile come out? Because, <laughs> because if it was 2002, it was definitely the same trip. I Google it. Eight Mile came out the next day in 2002. So again, it was just like a really beautiful, um, just co-pro, co teamwork. Teamwork. Yeah. We still haven't found the photo said, yet, but. We have not. Yeah. I love that you were, you were like, we should have been recording that. That was about an hour and a half of work. Yeah. <laughs> Between the two of us. Yep. We should have recorded it because it would have been adorable. Um, and it was. But yeah, it's the idea that it went for so long with just us being like, was it this? Was it this? We saw Eight Mile twice as soon as it, like it's opening weekend. I think we saw it two days in a row. We did. We loved it there so much. We went back the next day. And we went to a super late one, so yep. we had a nap at eight. <laughs> went to like an eleven o'clock show. Yeah, and I believe it was the eleven o'clock show where people stood up and applauded the rap battles. They did. Yeah, and we were really thrown in that moment. We were like, "Are we doing this in theaters now?" And because Christy and I always had a very staunch rule that we would never have this a crush on the same person. Yes. I chose my crush from 8 Mile, not to be Mackay Pfeiffer, which, by the way, is the obvious, and I'll say it, right choice. <laughs> Correct. I chose Cheddar Bob. You did. Cheddar Bob. Now, let's look Cheddar Bob up. Who is that actor? What's he doing now? You know what I mean? This, we're going to give you in real time. This is how we work. This is The thing is, work. we also are very quick to commit. We are. Yes. Like the second we get in there, we're like, well, obviously I like this person and I need to find every magazine they've ever been in. Exactly. And watch all their work. Exactly. Um, yeah. And now I know what you're thinking. Why would you choose him over the carved from Gibraltar beauty that is Mackay Pfeiffer? <laughs> I understand that question. And I think yeah. that the answer is, is that Cheddar Bob... Um, scratched the itch of the like he, even though he wasn't punk rock he felt like he had that kind of vibe to him sure you know what I, I mean I was gonna say lovable sidekick that too that he, too I think he was the comic relief wasn't he what I don't know if, if we, there was maybe, comic relief maybe yeah 
Yeah, yeah. He was kind of the more jokey. I think if there was any laugh, it would have been from him. <laughs> I think you're right. Certainly wouldn't you're have right. been from Rabbit. No, and thank you for using his character name. Um, Evan <laughs> Jones is the name of the actor. Evan Jones. Hey. Yes. He's, um, okay, what do we got here? Ooh, okay, Den of Thieves. Interesting. DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Midnight Texas. Okay, okay. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Volume 2. He played someone no called Wretch. It's always so hard when we're talking about any sort of ma- like Marvel movie or whatever because it's like could be mm. in makeup, could be a complete, you know, could be a CGI character. True. You never know. That is true. Um well, listen. Maybe I'll look him up. Let's see if he's on Instagram. Again, this is how we work, folks. This is what our this is 90% of our downtime is this. Looking someone up, looking up their yes. Instagram. There'll be long silences, and then we'll be like, oh, yep, found it. Here it is. Um, hmm, common name, unfortunately. Of Maybe course. not on Instagram. You know, ironically, who comes up is Van Jones. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Who I'm already following, obviously. Um, of course. Remember when there was the rumor that he was dating Kim Kardashian? And that was you the hottest thing I've ever very heard. Very excited. I was about, yeah. very excited. Anyway, um, listen, I'll look harder for him later, but, you know, that's the update there. Uh, shout out Evan Jones. Yes. He, he won me over. And listen, that's really, that's kudos to him. Because, again, Mackay Pfeiffer, just a specimen. Right there. Yeah. Right there. But, again, you're right. I think it was the spirit of the character. He has yeah. that. There is a faction of, of men that I'm attracted to that have that energy. Sure. You know what I mean? That kind of sidekick Almost golden retriever-ish energy. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like an innocence. I mean, we we have a gift with going in so hard. Yeah. With those crushes. And it's so instant. Just so instant. Yeah. Like, I got nervous when we watched the movie Hair. <laughs> because, because I was like, well, obviously Treat Williams is the main attraction there um and of course and i had watched it because because treat williams was yours and that's how that's why we were watching it yes uh so good old donnie dacus thank god for him because (laughs) i and that was the time i picked the goofy sidekick that's true it's nice yeah it's like the venn diagram of men we have crushes on that group in the middle it's small like it, the, the ones the, that we share. The, the ones that we are both there. Yeah. I mean, Keanu Reeves, because we've just agreed that's bigger than us. It's Yeah, it's bigger than everybody. Um. Oh, God, who else would be in there? Probably uh, Dave Grohl, I guess. Dave Grohl. See, because that, yeah, that's a real one, because I also was, like, in love with Dave Grohl, like, years ago, like, like long before mm-hmm. we were having these conversations. You know, what am I talking about? We've always been having these conversations. But in my defense, circa Nirvana. Oh, yeah. You would have more. I was more. I was. You would have. You were. You would have been Dave. I was always yeah. Dave. Because we were following the rule. Dave once he was daddy. Like, once he got that. <laughs> once he went. Once he realized facial hair was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. I almost think that Dave Grohl is in is in the Keanu category for us, where it's bigger than us. Like I think it has yeah. got he has gotten there. I think it's it's he did. It's bigger than us. 
Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, but again, I would say, I would say there's probably less than 10 people on that, like mutually agreed upon. We just agree that it's both and we move on. What about the Ryans? Oh, well, see, and also what are the rules? Are we saying like, (laughs) is this a person where if one of us was given a chance, the other would go, I can't for her and bow out? (laughs) Or is this a case of like, oh, obviously she'd understand. What like, I is love, she would understand. What I love <laughs> is that there is that, that there's a world in which <laughs> that if I had if you had Brad Pitt on your list and then Brad Pitt was interested, <laughs> I'd have to say, I'm sorry, Brad Pitt, <laughs> but I I have to out of allegiance for my best friend, I have to not go for you. Like I feel like truthfully, it's like you know. Anybody on either person's list, like if the if anybody has a chance, like go for it. You if you have the chance, yeah. I mean, do you think I really want to be maid of honor at the wedding where you're marrying Jack Black? The answer is no. <laughs> but see, Jack Black doesn't appeal to me. He's amazing. That's ideal. It's no, that's ideal. It's it's not yeah. you know it's not a sh- shady. I love Jack Black, but but that one I'm like you. That's totally fine. That one's on Christie's side of the diet. And listen, there's so many just. <laughs> unbathed musicians that I'm interested in and you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, even, I mean, even with bands, it was always, we have to have, we can't have the same one. But you know what's interesting about that? I think we naturally gravitated that way. I think it's very rare for us to have gravitated the same way unless, like we're saying, they're like their own planet, they have a gravitational pull. Jared Leto. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I also don't think that Jared Leto is human. And I mean that in like a positive. Like, I think he's like an ethereal being. Oh, sure. His face doesn't make sense. He doesn't age. Scientifically, it does not. It's like perfectly symmetrical or something. His face is so appealing to the eye. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I think that, I think a lot of people, regardless of um, sexualities, I think most people could look at a picture of Jared Leto and go like, yeah. That's a like, hot man. It's he's yeah. gore, he's beautiful. That's a beautiful though. human. He's so beautiful. Yeah. That's what it is to me about yeah. him. Oh God, the Leto. Yeah, I s- found those pictures earlier when we saw Thirty Seconds to Mars. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Could you go for a lemonade? That was when I believe the quote. Well, I guess it's pizza if it's going to be a decent meal. Came through. <laughs> that's that's because Nana did a walk around for the food options, and we had shown up thinking we're going to grab a dinner while we're there, and it was like, yeah, well, the only option was like pizza, and I was like, oh, what did you think was going to be there? <laughs> yeah, it was like, like what did we think they were going to be serving at this like I don't even remember what that venue was. It was like out of downtown Toronto too. It was a bit of a drive. I remember I had to get a zip car. That sounds right. A zip car is a car that you can rent by the hour or by the day. Well, you'll love For this. On the know. break, on the break, I can grab. A, I have an album that I have all my ticket stubs in. Oh, and that'll that'll give us the day. I'd the, like uh, to know. Well, I wonder if we could yeah. Google it. What was that? Probably good. What was that show? Well, that was the used, and thirty yeah. seconds to Mars. Yep. What and year? Then we literally ignored everybody else. 
Yeah, because it was like a, almost like a mini festival thing, right? Like there was a bunch of yep. bands. Yep. Oh, I can see it in my head. I can too. Um, Taste of Chaos. Taste of Chaos. Yes! Yes. Well done. <laughs> that was also the show that girls approached us. They looked at the sea of women and they approached us for tampons. And that's the moment we turned to each other and went, do we look old? Well, yeah. We looked responsible. We looked responsible. I think I, think I commented, oh my God, does she think we're old? And you were like, she just thinks you look responsible. I do think that that's what it was. I don't think we looked old. With the time that we definitely felt old was, I believe, when we were going to see that boxcar racer concert. And we were like, where are your they didn't coats? Have their coats? And it was November. Yeah. In Toronto. In Toronto. It was freezing cold. <sighs> uh, the concert was held at Arrow Hall, which I believe is in North York. Mississauga. Hey. Mississauga. There we go. There you go. And that, dear listeners, <laughs> is the bulk of our relationship. Yeah. Ah. yeah. But one yeah. of us goes, what was that? And the other goes, I don't know. And we go back and forth until one goes, hey, it's this. And the other goes, aha. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's essentially us. Yeah, our relationship is a yeah. series of aha and that's good, yeah. which is food related. <laughs> that's a nice item. It's a nice item. It's a nice food item. I did find, because Christy is such a, again, she's such a good archivist. She's such a good scrapbooker. I did find a scrapbook earlier, <laughs> which was just us and food. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> that does sound right. Yeah. Which, listen, again, I feel like that's, what better way to mark the periods of time than by the meals we ate? Yeah. Right? Yeah, we had, we had, we just had a thing for taking uh, pictures of us with food. Not yes. necessarily just of the food, but That's pictures right. of us with food. Like sand through the hourglass. These are the cheeseburgers of our lives. <sighs> I would annihilate a cheeseburger. There's 50 cent cheese, double cheeseburgers at McDonald's coming up. I believe the 18th. Get out of town. You got to order it on the app, but 50 cents. Hey. For a double cheeseburger? That's a good value. <laughs> it's just the earnest. That's <laughs> what I love. Well, that's a good value. And it is. Come I'm not on. denying it. Yeah. But you could not be more adorable when just so earnest. Listen. It, uh, it charms me. The problem is when we do trips, especially... Uh, the later our years get, we forget to take photos at all. Here's what's amazing. Before smartphones, yeah. when we were talking like disposable cameras, cameras with real film, yeah. even digital cameras, we used to take hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of photos constantly. And yes, since we've got, been, been gifted with the technology of having a camera in our hands all the time, we barely photograph anything. We have not, yep. it, it, it became a running bit with us. Yeah. Where we don't remember until we're saying goodbye at the airport. Yes. And then Which we're like, is, for fuck's sakes, we didn't take a photo. Of course, it's a testament to what a good time we're having that we forget. But I of think more, moreover, I'm like, but we were having a good time before. Why did we not forget before when we had to, again, buy film? I guess maybe that's why it's on your mind. 
You have to buy yeah. film or, you know. I feel like yeah. even even with the digital camera, I feel like in one sense it would feel like, oh, well, then you would be taking more. But I think maybe, but but it, almost not. Like I think it was having to buy the film reminded you to take the picture or something. Oh, sure. Because those there also, was also – You got to get your value. You do. Whereas this, it's like I use the phone for the internet. That's its value. <sighs> and text. And texting me. Yeah. Or rather – Receiving multiple texts from me. I have said recently uh, when I was like away from my phone, like in the kitchen and my phone's like in the living room or something, if it, it, it goes off once and if it's then silent, it's not Lauren and it's probably not anything too important. <laughs> but if it goes off like three plus times in a row, I'm like, that's Lauren. And if it goes off over four times, that's Lauren and it's big. <laughs> It's true. Yeah. It's Because I've been, we sat, we, it was just the other day, we were sitting, having dinner, and my phone went off, and my husband was like, oh, did did you need to grab that? And I went, just hold on. And then it, like, did another, and then another, and I was like, no. No, okay. It, it won't be, no, she's not in a hurry. <laughs> he was like, how do you know? I'm like, if you go four or more. Four or more, something's up. Something's happened. Yeah. 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 It's not unusual to pick up my phone and see I have seven messages from you. And that was within, like, I put my phone down, walked away, and came back. Yeah. Not over the course of a day. Yeah. Because we're, like, speaking throughout the day. Yes. All the time. Yes. Sometimes series of voice notes. Sometimes it's just texting. But, uh, yes. In constant contact. Yes. And yet when we see each other, they're like, once a year we do. Yep. Don't even bother getting a... Don't don't use the phone for another purpose. Nope. No pictures. We've been getting a little bit better more recently. Yeah. We've been really trying to push, push each other. That's like, let's take a picture. We've got to take a picture. It's true. But it has become that like, oh, you know what we have to do. As opposed to like, hey, well, we're in the moment. Yep. So we have had, uh-oh, we got to go back, like, go back and get in that moment to uh, quickly take a photo. We do. The bottom line yeah. is this. Will the Burt McCracken Lauren Ash photograph be found? Will it be in Christie's archives or in Lauren's mess? Stay tuned for this <laughs> riveting tale next week on True Crime and Cocktails. We'll see. We'll see is the point. Yeah. What I love is they're going to have to wait till next week. We will know within 12 hours. Yep. We'll know, I mean, God, we'll know, I'm going to say 12 hours because I don't want you digging around in a basement in the dark yeah. late at night. Yeah, no, I don't want that either. Yes. Um, but that reminds me, speaking of updates, there's another update. Now, which this is miraculous because it's an update based on the bonus episode that came out on this past Wednesday. Right. We are now, we're recording Friday. So this is within 48 hours of that episode coming out. There's already an update, my goodness. Um but the, the update, of course, is that Ashton Kutcher, who we discussed on that episode about Danny Masterson, um, yeah. has resigned from the Thorn, uh, the organization called Thorn, that he was, I believe, um, high-ranking, maybe the high-ranking board member. I can't remember his, addition, his actual um, position there. But he has resigned his position with Thorn due to, of course, people's outcry in writing a letter of support 
for a convicted rapist, Danny Masterson, um, when he, of course, was the head and face of this anti-child sex trafficking charity, Thorn. Um, It does feel like it was a wild move on his part to write that letter, um, which, of course, is what a lot of the conversation has been and was in that episode. But yeah, already, my goodness, already an update. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised <laughs> that it was like yeah. it. I'm sure he has his people because I'm sure he has many of them. I'm sure they were like, I think that's the move. Unfortunately, it's unfortunate. Thorn were like, you should go. It could have been that, too. I just think, again, you know, I'm not defending the action in this scenario, but had it been before he was found guilty, I think that that would have been easier for people to wrap their heads around Sure, if it was like, you know, before there was a conviction. But when it was in support of trying to make his sentence lenient as a convicted sex offender, that's rough. That's rough. Again, I'm not condoning yeah. or or promoting that he should have been supporting him if he hadn't been found guilty yet. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I can wrap my head around a little easier. I can get the sure. mindset where perhaps at that point they didn't believe that he was guilty, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have been found guilty in a court of law, um, I don't know that it's the time to, uh, if the person has been found guilty in a court of law, I don't know if it's the time to show your support um, Yeah, in that way. Yeah. Look, uh, he... He and uh, he and Mila maybe made a misstep there. Yeah, bit of a misstep sending uh, a misstep. those letters, um, especially when the apology is just a simple. Well, we didn't know. We didn't think they'd be public. It. It's like, oh, I, you know what? I would have respected more if it was like we were emotional. If it was like this is someone sure. that we deeply love. That we couldn't sure. believe would ever commit these kinds of crimes. We were emotional and we were reacting from a place of love because we have great love for this person. That doesn't mean that our action was correct. But to me, it's like, again, it's like showing some form of like, and look, I didn't watch the whole apology video, so I shouldn't even be commenting. Maybe they did no. say that in the video. I don't know. But my point is, is that it's like, I just always think that if you approach these things from a greater place of vulnerability, um, it's harder to stay angry at someone, Right. And I can also wrap yeah. my head around that more. I think people can understand if someone says, like, this is someone who's very important in my life and that, you know, that doesn't, you know, defend my actions, but it just gives context for why that would happen. And I think Christina Ricci, as I mentioned in the bonus episode, she worded it very well, and I'm going to butcher it because I don't have it in front of me, but she said something along the lines of, like, I think we have to accept that there are people in our all of our lives who are wonderful people that are also capable of doing very bad things. And that is the truth. Yeah. And we do, we've do. we done this show long enough to be able to say, like, yeah, you hear we hear about it almost every week. There's so many times where someone's like, there's no way that this person would have committed this crime. And they were absolutely guilty. Like, a lot of the yeah. makeup of someone who's able to commit a murder, commit a sex crime, all of the above, a lot of that is that these people are impossibly charming. It's part of the whole package. They, they dupe people. That's how it works. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, I get it. I mean, I can't imagine someone that you've been like super close friends with finding out like for decades, finding out that they've done something. Yeah. To that level. I mean, yeah, I don't know. But, uh, 
But yeah, maybe him stepping down was the right move, and maybe he just continues to support them financially in some way. Uh, yes. In yes. A Ashton and Thorne. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, listen, before we get into it, what you drinking over there? <clears throat> um, well, I we're, we, we're doing this a little earlier than usual, so I have a, a leftover Slurpee from my uh, grocery run this afternoon and uh, and a water but on the break, I got a Mike's Peach. Have you I'm tried them try yet? It. Oh. I have not. I've been waiting for this moment. I'm so excited for I already you. Had the, but I already had the drink, but I'm going to crack it at the uh, crack it at the half. It wasn't even the half. At half the third, crack. At the, thank you. Yeah. I'm going to crack it after a break is what I'm going to I love it. Well, listen, yeah. I have water, I have a Diet Coke, and I have a Gatorade because, again, I have not been well. And I know what people are thinking. Don't be drinking Diet Coke if you're sick, Lauren. And to that, I say, it's the only thing that brings me joy. <laughs> don't steal her joy. And to be honest with you, I do find that if I don't have one, I start to get headachey. And I know that that means you have a dependence on caffeine. And I don't care. I don't care. I'm doing what I have to do to get through the record, to bring don't the products to the, fo- to the folks. You know, don't yeah. yuck my yum. Exactly. Even if it's yeah. bad for my health. Oh, get off my oh. back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing the oh. best I can. And that is the truth. You're doing great. You're here. <clears throat> You're doing great. Thank you. Thank you very Ow. much. Well, listen, let's get into the episode. Could not be more excited. I have no idea about this case whatsoever. So if uh, we're talking about the herb or is it herb? I guess it's oh, I'm gonna I'm I'm going with a hard H in there. I'm yeah. absolutely gonna say I think it always is on a name, right? I think it's only well, herb if it's I saw a TikTok the other day where it's a chef who stitches himself to a you know what I mean, to other people's uh videos, um, specifically when they're cooking, and someone said herb and he went, No, herb. Really? But he's also very like grumpy New Yorker. Like you just you don't fuck with him. Like, that's kind of the vibe he gives. So I don't know if that's just him. But right. he was definitely very, like, they're herbs. Everybody calls them herbs. Like, he was very herb. I know that but, the yes. Brits call them with a hard H. Don't they? Sure. Oh, I don't know. I'm pretty sure. Um, Interesting. All I'm right. going to go with herb. Yeah. Herb Baumeister. Yeah. Herb Baumeister. This, of course, is our August patrons poll pick uh, over on Patreon. Um, uh, you can vote for an episode that we cover one per month on this main feed of the show. So check it out, patreon.com slash Cocktails if you're interested in more about that. This was the winner for the August poll. So let's get a little backstory about Herb. In the fall of 1995, police in Indianapolis, Indiana, believed that they had linked a local man named Herb Baumeister to a series of unsolved disappearances. Herb a married father of three who owned a small chain of thrift stores in the area, denied any involvement. But when police were finally granted permission to search Herb's property several months later, they discovered the remains of potentially 25 people. So who is Herb Baumeister? How was he able to stay under the radar for so long? And what eventually brought him down? Christy Oxborough investigates. I didn't realize this was a serial killer case, and I don't know about him, and I am jazzed. Yeah, uh, the the poll option choice uh, chosen was the 80s. So Ooh. it's going to seem like it doesn't make sense yet. But at one point in this, I will be like, I will explain 
why this guy was chosen anyway. But um, I, yeah, I've never done a serial killer one on yeah. my own. And I'm going to say this. I won't name the name, but w- we plan these out far enough in advance because Patreon tends to know our monthly schedule ahead of time. So we have to know ahead of time what we're going to do. So sometimes if I know several weeks in advance, I'll look online, see if I can order books about certain things. I ordered a book about this case that I was very excited about because there's not a everything you find online is just like the same thing over and over again because there's not a lot about him that's different. So I'm like, a book about him. Perfect. Exactly what I needed. I did not realize until it showed up that it was like a self-printed situation. Fine. I thought it was like he'd gone through a publisher or whatever. Right. It was like a self-print through Amazon kind of thing. Fine. I got about a paragraph in and went, woof, this guy isn't the great. I don't like how he writes. Right. So he was going for a very dramatic feel that I just felt was lost on me. And then he used the wrong name for one of the children in this, which the children aren't a huge part of it. But I I was like, well, it could have been a typo, but it was very clearly a different name. And then there was another detail that was off. And then I shut the book and went, I'm out. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you got to watch. You got to watch what kind of books you look at for certain things because... uh, not 100% accurate. Anyhow. Yeah. Uh, but I'm very jazzed because I've never uh, looked into a serial killer. There you go. On my own before. And uh, this guy, horror show. So there you go. So disclaimer off the top. This isn't the top. Close enough. Uh, this episode will contain mentions of suicide and alcohol abuse. So trigger warning for those who need it. Herbert Richard Baumeister, known as Herb, was born April 7th, 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana. His father, Herbert Sr., was an anesthesiologist, and his mother, Elizabeth, was a homemaker. Herb was the first of four siblings, which also included Barbara, born in 1948, Brad in 1954, and Richard in 1956. For the most part, it seemed that Herb had a normal childhood. He was described as sensitive and caring, said to always make his friends and family laugh. In the late 50s, the Baumeister family, Baumeister, sorry, Baumeister family moved to the affluent area of Indianapolis called Washington Township. It wasn't far from the area where they previously lived, but I assume it required the children to change schools, which may or may not have had a negative effect on Herb. Shortly after the move, which coincided with Herb starting puberty, he started showing signs of antisocial behavior. Herb developed a fascination with death and would often play with dead animals, including the time he left a dead bird on a teacher's desk. Herb's interests then broadened from death to urine. Yeah, you you heard me correctly. I said urine, pee, whatever you'd like to call it. <laughs> I absolutely did say it. 
Uh, according to some kids who went to school with Herb, on more than one occasion, Herb would think out loud, I wonder what urine tastes like. Interesting. Mm. Perhaps this was how a child with a very dark sense of humor tried to get attention. Or maybe Herb was just a bit strange. Either way, asking what urine would taste like. Herb would then chase boys around the schoolyard and ask them for a drink. Which is a level that I don't know. Uh, this was the moment I'm like, where do I go from here? <laughs> where do you go from urine? Well, what I love is that I'm like, oh, yeah, she doesn't normally research these ones. <laughs> these, these are usually the psychological things that I dive into. Yeah, yeah. that's, yeah, wow, okay. I would like you to know that I did make sure to look into it, and from the best I can tell, there were no head injuries. Thank you very no, much. No, like, frontal. Yep. Damage is what I no. I like. I'm I need already to make sure. I'm already building a. I'm already building a profile, and uh, yeah, that actually isn't. I don't think that's a part of this one. But oh, well, okay, I'll save great. it. I'll save it till the end. I'll save it. Great. So, <laughs> I I don't know. Um, there were also multiple times that Herb urinated on multiple teachers' desks. Wow! So not just one teacher. Multiple teachers. And uh, spoiler alert, that's not the last time I'm going to talk about urine. Yeah, this is I'll only mention it once briefly uh, again, but still, it, it just, again, you don't think it's going to be there, and then it is. So when Herbert Sr. finally grew concerned with his <laughs> son's behavior, Herb was taken for testing where he was diagnosed with ant antisocial antisocial personality disorder, and paranoid schizophrenia. Despite the very clear diagnoses he was given, Herb was never sent for any psychiatric treatment. Oh, wonderful. In high school, unlike his peers, Herb did not have an interest in sports or dating, so he spent the majority of his time alone. After graduation, Herb attended Indiana University, but dropped out after one semester. Herbert Sr. pulled some strings and got Herb a job as a copy clerk at the Indianapolis Star newspaper. Then at the Rose Bowl on January 2nd, 1967, Herb met Juliana Sater, known as Julie. She was a sophomore at Indiana University working towards a degree in education. Julie described Herb as, quote, Always so much fun to be with. He had so many interests and was extremely creative. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Charming. How he was presenting at that point in his life? Yep. <laughs> in the fall of 1967, Herb returned to the university uh, after his father's urging. He briefly studied zoology for a semester and then dropped out. He worked random jobs while Julie finished her degree. She graduated in the spring of 1971 and took a job teaching journalism at Broad Ripple High School. Herb proposed to Julie shortly after her graduation, and the couple got married months later on the Thanksgiving weekend. 
1972 was a busy year for Herb. He attended Butler University, but dropped out soon after starting. Then just six months after his wedding, Herb's father had Herb committed to a psychiatric hospital where he remained for two months. What? After he was released, yeah, they never they never said all that was said was Julie felt like he was going through some stuff and needed help. And but his father had him committed. His Not father his, was the one who very had him interesting. Uh, after Herb was released, uh, Herb and Julie bought their first home, and Herb started working for the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. And while things seemed to be going well from the outside, there was more trouble for the newlyweds. I don't know the exact time when it happened, but according to Julie, it was early in their marriage. Uh, Herb just didn't speak to her for an entire year. Which feels... I mean, it says a lot without saying literally anything. Wowzer. Wowzer. Uh, she later said that Herb was always a little strange... Uh, Julie never noticed anything that she said that people would consider to be red flags. Mm -hmm. In June 1975, Julie left teaching with the hopes of starting a family. The couple eventually had three children. It included Marnie in 1979, Eric in 1981, and Emily in 1984. When the children were born, Herb continued working for the Bureau of Motor Vehicles he managed to get promoted to program director. However, his co-workers found him odd. They said he made inappropriate jokes that made him uncomfortable. There was a time that Herb handed out Christmas cards that featured him and another man dressed up as women. Keeping in mind, this was a completely different time. His co-workers just didn't understand it. Herb's co-workers also claimed that Herb could be pushy, and sometimes he lashed out at them for no reason. At one point, someone urinated on the manager's desk. There were rumors that it was Herb, but there was no proof, so nothing was ever done about it. On September 3rd, 1985, Herb was involved in a hit-and-run accident while driving under the influence. He managed to Get a simple slap on the wrist for that. Six months later, in March 1986, Herb was charged with auto theft and conspiracy to commit auto theft after he stole a friend's car. After a one-day bench trial, the charges were dropped and Herb didn't do any jail time. 1986 continued uh, in a negative way for the Baumeister family with the death of Herb's father in mid-November. Herbert Sr. was 66 at the time of his death. The following year, in 1987, Herb was fired from the Bureau of Motor Vehicles after urinating on a letter that was addressed to the Indiana governor at the time. Herb then struggled to find work, so he stayed home with the children while Julie went back to work. Herb eventually returned to work himself, finding a job at a local thrift store, which is a charity shop for our UK listeners or an op shop for the Aussies. And when Herb saw how well the thrift store was doing, he decided to open his own. God, open a thrift store now? 
I bet you'd do even better now than you would have done in 1993. Oh, yeah. I'm saying it, although this was 1988 at this point. But so in 1988, thanks to a $4,000 loan from his mother, Elizabeth, which is equivalent to just over 10000 in 2023, Herb opened the Save-A-Lot thrift store on Arlington Avenue in Indianapolis. Not to be confused with the supermarket chain of the same name, Herb's Save-A-Lot did not have a letter E on the end of the word save. Uh, the store made over $50,000 in its first year, which is about 123000 in 2023. So Herb and Julie decided to open a second location on West Washington Street. The store was described by a magazine as the best place to buy used jeans. Wow. Yeah. At the time, the store also secured a contract with the Children's Bureau. The Bureau offered support for children in low-income or single-parent families, as well as managed group homes, which placed children with adoptive or foster parents. I do not know the details of the contract. I assume that Save-A-Lot was supplying the Children's Bureau with clothing, maybe at a discounted price, and even with the discount, the contract was a big moneymaker for Herb. In late 1991, things were going so well for the Baumeisters that they purchased an 18-acre ranch in the Westfield area of Indianapolis. It was called Fox Hollow Farm, and it featured an 11,000-square-foot house with four bedrooms and an indoor pool. Over the next few years, the Baumeisters lived a seemingly normal life. Herb played the role of a doting father and a loving husband, and Julie later said overall... They were a happy family. But in 1994, sales at Save-A-Lot started to decrease, which caused financial problems that strained Herb and Julie's marriage. In, in response, Herb started drinking heavily and was even known to show up to work intoxicated. Those who knew him said that Herb's behavior became more and more erratic. At some point that year, he was arrested for driving under the influence in Rochester, Indiana, he was sentenced to three days in jail and one year probation. To revitalize the business, Herb shut down the Arlington Avenue location in 1995 and reopened it in a strip mall on East 82nd Street. I don't know why he did that. The move was very costly. It did nothing to save the business. In fact, it made things worse. That same year, Save-A-Lot's contract with the Children's Bureau changed which caused Herb's profits to further decrease. By the summer of 1996, the Children's Bureau terminated the contract entirely, and the Save-A-Lot stores were closed. And while the Baumeister finances were causing strain on Herb and Julie's marriage, it certainly wasn't the only thing. In December 1994, Herb and Julie's son Eric, who would have been about 13 at the time, was playing in the backyard when he found a human skull. He took it inside to show his mother, who was rightly horrified. Julie then followed Eric outside to the spot the skull came from, and they discovered the bones of a nearly in full, complete skeleton. Herb, who was not at home at the time, uh, came home. He told them not to worry. He said it was just the model skeleton that his father had used in his medical practice. A couple of things. One, 
Herbert Sr. was an anesthesiologist. Does that require having a full skeleton in his office (laughs) or in his possession at all? No. And two, if it was just a harmless model skeleton, why on earth would her bury it on their property? Did they believe Likely. Yes. They absolutely did. Yeah. Uh, Likely due to a combination of shock and just complete trust in Herb, Julie believed Herb's story and thought nothing of it. And Herb just simply tossed the skull and bones into a garbage can. Julie put the incident out of her mind and just continued with her life as normal. Although by this point, Herb's behavior had become erratic as his drinking had gotten out of hand. And according to his employees, Herb was starting to have what they called hurricane-level mood swings. And if that wasn't enough of a strain on their marriage, Herb and Julie were both working around the clock to try and prevent their save-a-lot business from going under. Then out of the blue, in November 1995, Herb told Julie he had been contacted by the police, but he said it was, quote, nothing to worry about. Police asked Herb if they could search his property. He said no. Unfortunately, at the time, police did not have enough evidence to obtain a search warrant. Police then spoke to Julie at her work, saying they believed Herb might have been responsible for the disappearances of several young men, and they needed her permission to search the property. Julie refused to believe it was true, so she denied the search. Julie eventually grew to fear her husband. In June 1996, she filed for divorce. Julie and the kids usually spent their summers at Lake Wawasee, um, at the condo owned by Herb's mother. It was about 100 miles or 160 kilometers from Indianapolis. But in 1996, Julie started taking the kids to the condo every weekend just to distance them from Herb. By June, Herb's erratic behavior had gotten worse, and on June 24th, Julie finally gave consent for the police to search the property. She took the police to the area in the woods where her son had found the skull 18 months prior. In the area, police discovered various bones and human teeth just kind of lying around. Oh, my God. That was enough to allow them to get a full warrant. The next day, they returned to Fox Hollow Farm with a with forensic anthropologists from the University of Indianapolis to search the property more thoroughly. In the woods, approximately 50 feet from the Baumeister home, investigators found a total of approximately 10,000 bone fragments. Wow. They believe that those 10,000 could be the remains of at least 25 people. Wow. Investigators were able to extract 11 human DNA samples. In 1999, investigators were able to identify eight of those samples. They included 20-year-old John Lee Bayer, known as Johnny, who was last seen on May 28, 1993. 31-year-old Jeffrey Allen Jones, known as Jeff, who was last seen July 6, 1993. 31-year-old Manuel Martinez Resendez, who was last seen August 6, 1993. 26-year-old Stephen Hale, who was last seen April 1st, 1994. 
28-year-old Alan Wayne Broussard, who was last seen June 6, 1994, 33-year-old Roger Allen Goodlett, who was last seen July 22, 1994, 20-year-old Richard Douglas Hamilton Jr., who was last seen July 31, 1994, and 46-year-old Michael Frederick Kiern, known as Mike, who was last seen March 31, 1995. And with these victims being discovered, I can't help but think of the remains that Herb so callously threw in the garbage in 1994 when he claimed they were just part of a medical skeleton used by his father. The family of that particular victim will now never know what happened to their loved one, and that is heartbreaking. I also can't imagine what Herb's son Eric went through, not only when he first discovered that skull, but also two years later when he learned that the skull was real. At the time the remains were found, Herb was on vacation with his son at his mother's lakeside condo. Before he left, Herb emptied the joint bank account that he shared with his wife. Soon after, Julie filed for sole custody of the children, and Herb dropped their son off at, with the nearest authorities. Who did not detain Herb, despite knowing that 11 bodies were found on his property? What? The police said, well, they didn't have the proper jurisdiction for oh, an arrest. God. Which is true. But they could have at least detained him until the property authority, proper authorities arrived. But after dropping off his son, Herb got the heck out of Dodge and headed for Canada. And let me say, I am relieved for Julie that Herb dropped their son off before he left the country. I can't imagine what might have happened to that child if he had been forced to stay with his father. Because just days later, on July 3rd, three campers discovered Herb's body in a vehicle in the Pinery Provincial Park on Lake Huron near Grand Bend, Ontario. Herb had taken his own life with a 357 Magnum handgun. He left a three-page long suicide note in which he apologized for the harm that this would cause his family and for, quote, spoiling the scenery of the provincial park. He claimed his failing business and his upcoming divorce were what officially pushed him over the edge. Nowhere in the note did it mention anything about the bodies wow. and fragments that were found. The note ended with the line, quote, I am going to eat a peanut butter sandwich and go to sleep. Herb Baumeister was 49 years old. Wow. Um, I am riveted. <laughs> I'm building. Oh, I'm building a, a pathology. No, what am I? Profile. My God, I lose language more by the day. Um, I'm building a profile. I am jazzed. Let's take a quick break. Grab a drink. Get that Mike's hard peach. And yes. we're going to be right back with more about Herb Baumeister on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime, True Crime and Cocktails. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the case of Herb Baumeister. Now, a young Christy Oxborough, I believe, has gotten herself a Mike's Hard Fuzzy Peach. I did. And I did. It smells delicious. Well. And she's taking the sip. That's nice. Right? That's crisp. It's crisp. Give it a couple more, too, and it gets, like, the first sip I had, I was like, oh, that's good. And then I kept going, and I was like, I could chug this. It's uh, it's absolutely, it's got fuzzy peach vibes. Right? Yeah. It tastes so much like fuzzy peaches. And also, I'll yeah. say, and I know it sounds crazy, but I'm like, it's not too sweet. No. It doesn't taste this, like sugar. This is the drink I would have uh, on a hot summer night yeah. on that wraparound porch I don't own. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. While I'm reading. Oh, I have to be careful. I don't get it too close to my books. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. That's where I'm at. That's um, where I'm at. All right. Before the break, I was riveted, my brain going a million miles a minute because I'm putting together my own psychological profile of this person. And I can't wait to find more information. Christy's also emailed me some charts ahead of time. I'm buzzing. <laughs> Oh, between this and the uh, last call that I've planned that we do after, it's the most, like, <laughs> that I've had to, oh, I should have a visual. Like, it's the most I've ever done that. Oh. In, like, I definitely haven't this year, so I can't wait. I love it. It let me play with the highlighters, and I couldn't have been more excited. So, I mentioned that human remains were discovered on Herb Baumeister's property back in 1996, and police had initially asked to search the property after discovering a link between Herb and some of the missing person cases. So we're going to take a step back and look at how investigators were able to discover that link in the first place. In the fall of 1994, Mary Beasley went to Virgil Vandegriff for help. Mary's 28-year-old son, Alan Broussard, was last seen leaving a gay bar in Indianapolis on June 6th, and he hadn't been seen or heard from since. Mary filed a missing persons report within days of Alan's disappearance, but Mary felt police were not taking it seriously. So she turned to Virgil Vandegriff, a former Marion County Sheriff who was then working as a private investigator. Two days after Mary's visit, a woman named Catherine Goodlett, Araujo, went to Virgil's office about the disappearance of her 33-year-old son, Roger Goodlett, who was last seen in an Indianapolis gay bar on July 22nd. Virgil couldn't help but notice the similarities between Alan and Roger's cases, so he thought, they might somehow be connected. 
Since both were last seen at gay bars in the downtown area, Virgil started hanging out at the bars, hoping for any sort of new information. He discovered that between 1993 and 94, nearly 10 men had disappeared under similar circumstances. Virgil then met a man who has been called both Tony Harris and Mark Goodyear. I don't think either is his real name. For the sake of consistency, we're just going to call him Tony. So Tony tells Virgil he had a very strange encounter with a man he met at the club in August 1994 after his friend Roger disappeared. Tony had put up missing posters of Roger Goodlett in multiple clubs, and one night he noticed a man sitting just kind of staring at one of those missing posters. Tony struck up a conversation with the man who called himself Brian Smart. Tony later said he was convinced by the way Brian was looking at the missing poster that Brian was somehow connected to Roger's disappearance. Brian claimed he was a gardener who was landscaping at a large house in the area. He said he was staying there while the owner was away. He asked if Tony was interested in checking out the pool at the house. Tony said yes. When they got to the house, they went to the basement, which had the indoor pool. Tony said there was a fully stocked bar, and surrounding the pool were several mannequins in various positions. Tony later told police, quote, They were all posed, one woman in a dress re reaching into a cabinet in the kitchenette. One was a lifeguard. Several others were just posed as if they were enjoying the day. When Tony asked Brian about them, Brian said, quote, I get lonely down here. They keep me company. Brian then started talking about his incredible love of cocaine and then made Tony a drink, which Tony dumped into a nearby sink behind Brian's back and replaced it with water. Brian then took some sort of drugs and they started to get intimate. Brian said he enjoyed erotic, as erotic asphyxiation, which, for those who are unaware, is when someone intentionally cuts off the air supply for either themselves or their partner for the sake of sexual pleasure. And hey, if everyone gives consent and no one gets hurt, you do you. But to add an unsettling element to this, Brian then allegedly admitted he felt an intense rush any time he brought men to the brink of death because he liked to watch their eyes bulge. Brian suggested that Tony use a hose from the pool to strangle him. But then Brian said he wanted to then do the same thing to Tony, but Tony wasn't really interested. Brian then snuck up behind Tony and wrapped a pool hose around Tony's neck but thanks to some quick thinking, Tony pretended to pass out. When he, quote-unquote, woke up, Brian panicked and said it was an accident. Brian drove Tony back to the city, and Brian thanked Tony for being a good sport and said he was very impressed with Tony's ability to, quote, play games. Wow. Tony threatened to go to the police, Brian not only said no one would believe that believe him, 
but he also added he had gotten away with this multiple times before. At this point, Tony was absolutely convinced that Brian was responsible for his friend Roger's disappearance. So before they parted ways, Tony suggested they get together a week later because he wanted to get the cops involved and he wanted to know where this guy was. Brian agreed. But when that date came, Brian never showed. Tony went to the police uh, anyway. However, they were unable to find a man named Brian Smart or find the house where the incident occurred. The house was out in the country, so when asked later about the address, Tony couldn't give exact directions. All he remembered is it was a Tudor-style house, and the entrance had a long driveway, and the name on the sign had the word farm in it. Unfortunately, that didn't narrow it down enough for the police to be able to find it. But as luck would have it, on August 29th, 1995, 11... Almost 12 months later, Brian Smart showed up at the Varsity Lounge where Tony was hanging out. This time, when Brian left, Tony followed Brian to the parking lot, wrote down Brian's license plate number, and when he gave it to the police, they were able to determine that Brian Smart was really Herb Baumeister. Good for Tony. I know. Smart thinking. Yes. And, uh, although, Tony, as a mother... <laughs> don't put yourself in harm's way. If you're yes. like, I think he's responsible, I'm going to go home with him. Good for you for not drinking that drink. Yeah. Good for you for getting yourself out of there. I'm just worried. But this was this was definitely uh, some smart thinking. So investigators believed that while Julie and her kids were at the condo in Lake Wawasee, Herb was going to gay bars in downtown Indianapolis looking for victims. They believed that Herb would take the men home, drug their drinks, and strangle them before he burned the bodies, crushed the bones, and buried them in the woods behind his house. In November, they approached Herb asking for permission to search his property. He said no. But as we already know, Julie eventually gave the necessary permission and the remains were found. Based on what was found, investigators estimate it could be up to 25 victims buried on the property. Through testing, they determined 11 human sample, uh, human DNA samples from the remains, and as I mentioned, eight were identified as of 1999. Of the eight, um, these eight victims were all murdered in the 90s, and I know our dear patrons maybe up to this point, have been questioning my choice of this episode because the winner of the August patrons poll was a case from the 80s. And since I only mentioned crimes from the 90s, it may seem like I was off the mark on choosing Mr. Baumeister. But stay with me, dear people, because in April 1998, investigators announced that Herb was the prime suspect in the I-70 Strangler case. Not to be confused with the I-70 killer who murdered six store clerks in the Midwest in the spring of 1992, the I-70 Strangler was known for picking up men and teenage boys within a four-block radius of downtown Indianapolis, strangling them with what appeared to be a rope, and then dumping their bodies in rivers or ditches along the interstate. 
the I-70 Strangler is said to be responsible for at least 12 murders between June 1980 and October 1991. The victims include 15-year-old Michael Sean Petrie, who went missing on June 7, 1980. His body was discovered in a ditch in Hamilton County, Indiana, nine days later. 23-year-old Maurice Allen Taylor, whose body was found in Weasel Creek outside Atlanta, Indiana, on July 21, 1982. 14-year-old Delvoid Lee Baker was reported missing October 2, 1982. His body was discovered the following day on Lantern Road near Fishers, Indiana. 22-year-old Michael Andrew Riley, known as Mick, was last seen May 28, 1993. His body was discovered a week later in a ditch in Hancock, Indiana, just southeast of Greenfield. 17-year-old Eric Allen Rotger was missing May 7, 1985. His body was discovered in a creek bed in Preble County, Ohio, just east of Lewisburg. 29-year-old Michael Allen Glenn, whose body was found in a ditch near Eaton, Ohio, um, in August 1986, there was 21-year-old James Boyd Robbins Jr., who was last seen October 7, October 15, 1987. His body was discovered two days later in a ditch in Shelby County, Indiana. The body of Jean-Paul Talbot was discovered in a stream in Defiance, Ohio, in May 1989. Sadly, there is no information available about Jean-Paul, so we have no idea when he went missing or how old he was at the time. 26-year-old Stephen Lynn Elliott, whose body was found in Preble County, Ohio, on August 12, 1989. 32-year-old Clay Russell Boatman was last seen August 14, 1990. His body was found in a ditch near Eaton, Ohio. 19-year-old Thomas Ray Clevenger Jr. was last seen in August 1990. His body was discovered September 15th on an abandoned railroad near Greenville, Ohio. And finally, 42-year-old Otto Gary Becker, whose body was discovered in a ditch in Henry County, Indiana, on October 7th, 1991. Many of the victims were partially nude. Some were determined to have been strangled with a rope. Some of the victims were known to be sex workers who worked in and around the gay bars in the downtown area. Most of the victims were members of the LGBTQIA community, although some of the families absolutely deny that. Right. Investigators believe that due to Herb's location at the time and his history of strangulation, that Herb is the I-70 strangler. But it's hard for them to definitively say yes, as they don't have any physical evidence linking Herb to any of those crimes. Was DNA ever found on those bodies? I don't know if they were looking for it at that point. Did the fact that the bodies were out, found outside for days and weeks at a time make DNA difficult to find in the first place? It's depressing to think that Herb likely killed these 12 boys and men, and yet there isn't a way to prove that he had. But I find it interesting that the I-70 Strangler seemingly stopped in late 1991, around the time that Herb and his family moved to Fox Hollow Farm. It's almost like the Strangler 
didn't need to dump the bodies anymore because he now owned 18 acres worth of land to bury them on instead. Allegedly. And yes, it's possible that more than one person is responsible for the I-70 Strangler murders and that Herb isn't one of them. But the crimes are just so similar to me, I have a hard time believing anyone else could have committed them. And I will admit it's possible, uh, but the idea of males going missing from downtown Indianapolis all being found strangled to death just feels like the work of the same person. And I know the remains that were discovered on his property were just fragments of bones, so it's not going to determine how those men died. So we can't tell if strangulation was involved in those cases or not. And maybe I'm putting too much faith in the witness account from Tony Harris, who claimed that Herb strangled him after they met at a bar. But I fully believe the victims the victims experienced that same thing that Tony did, except I believed that they were drugged when they accepted the drink that he offered them. I also fully believe that Herb letting Tony go that night means that there were likely other men out there who engaged in sexual acts with Herb and then were sent home. Why? Because I refuse to believe that Herb only engaged in sex with men that he killed. Yes, it's possible that full intercourse didn't happen. And it was always the, I mean, it could have been just a, you choke me, then I choke you, and then we're done. But I think that if Herb killed every man he had a sexual encounter with, he would have either not let Tony go, or he would have tried to go after Tony a second time, especially when they've arranged a date for a week later. So maybe random hookups happened more than we realized, but no one has come forward to admit to any of that, any sort of relationship in that regard. I just want to know a more concrete timeline of these encounters to see how often they happened versus how often they ended up ended in sex or how often they ended in murder. And maybe Tony is the only one who survived a night with Herb and I've just gotten too investigative-y for my own liking or my own good. But part of the reason that I assume there were random hookups that didn't end in murder was because I know that Herb wasn't exactly sexually active at home. Ah. According to Julie, over the course of their 25-year marriage, she and Herb had sex six times. Wow. Yeah. She said even on their wedding night, no sex occurred as Herb had brought along a stack of magazines to catch up on his reading. Julie stated that in all their time together, she had never once seen Herb completely naked. She later said their relationship wasn't perfect, but overall, they were happy. So, so far... I have mentioned Herb's eight known victims that were discovered at Fox Hollow Farm, as well as the 12 victims of the I-70 Strangler, who may or may not have been Herb. There were also four murders that occurred between August 1981 and May 1983 that investigators believe were linked to Herb Baumeister. They just couldn't prove it. These include 25-year-old Gary Davis, 
27-year-old Dennis Bronst, Bronsky, 21-year-old John Lee Roach, and 22-year-old Daniel Scott McNeve. Of those four men, we know that Herb is not connected to the murders of John Roach in December 1982 and Daniel McNeve in May 1983. The reason we know this is because someone else has already confessed to those murders, which leads me to a serial killer side note. Hello. Full-on creep Larry Eiler was first arrested for a routine traffic violation in Lowell, Indiana on September 30th, 1983. At the time, Eiler had a hitchhiker in his car, so he was detained on charges of soliciting the young hitchhiker for sexual purposes. The officer who pulled Eiler over searched the vehicle and discovered two sections of nylon rope, a knife, a hammer, handcuffs, a mallet, surgical tape, and two baseball bats. Police then noted that Eiler's shoes and the tires on his vehicle both matched plaster casts that had been taken from the scene of a murder in August 1983. However, Eiler was released because the arresting officer not only conducted the search of that vehicle without Eiler's consent, but he also did the search before informing Eiler that he was under arrest. Wonderful. He was released from custody in early 1984, so he fled to Chicago, where he murdered a 16-year-old boy named Daniel Bridges Ah. on August 19th. Eiler was arrested after police discovered extensive traces of blood in Eiler's bedroom, as well as marks that prove that Eiler dragged Daniel to the bathroom where he was dismembered and placed in garbage bags. The bags were found in a dumpster behind Eiler's apartment building. The victim, Daniel, had suffered 14 wounds to the sternum with an ice pick, five knife wounds to the abdomen that were deep enough his intestines were partially exposed, and three knife wounds to his back, which perforated his heart and left lung. Eiler claimed he was innocent, saying his fingerprints must have gotten on the garbage bags when he placed his own garbage bags in the dumpster. Insert eye roll here. Yeah. Eiler was charged with murder, aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and the concealment of a body. After deliberating for three hours, a jury found Larry Eiler guilty on all counts. He was sentenced to the death penalty. Eiler then filed an appeal, finally admitting, yes, he did dismember Daniel Bridges, and he put his remains in a dumpster. However, Eiler claimed he only did so after somebody else murdered him. (sighs) The appeal was dismissed, and Eiler was set to be executed on March 14, 1990. Eiler then agreed to confess to other murders if his sentence would be commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In this confession, Eiler admitted to the murder of 23-year-old Stephen Egan in December 1982. Eiler was given an additional 60-year sentence to be served after his previous life sentence. In 1994, while in prison, Eiler died from AIDS-related complications at the age of 41. After his death, 
Eiler was later called the highway killer or the interstate killer because it turns out he had a lot of victims that had not been previously mentioned and a lot of them were found close to an interstate. Two days after Eiler's death, his lawyer gave a press conference during which she revealed that Eiler had confessed to her to killing 20 teenage boys and young men that Eiler uh, said he killed between 1982 and 1984. Very quickly, those victims include 19-year-old Stephen Malcolm Crockett, 26-year-old Edgar Anthony Underkofler, 25-year-old John R. Johnson, 19-year-old William Joseph Lewis, 22-year-old David M. Block, 16-year-old Irvin Dwayne Gibson, 19-year-old John Daniel Bartlett, 22-year-old Michael Christopher Bauer, 17-year-old Richard Arthur Wayne Jr., 26-year-old Gustavo Pineda Herrera, 18-year-old Jimmy T. Roberts, 25-year-old Richard Edward Bruce Jr., 16-year-old Keith Lavelle Bibbs, 28-year-old Ralph E. Calise, and 19-year-old John Ingram Bradenburg, Braderberg Jr. Also included on that list was 21-year-old John Roach and 21-year-old Daniel McNeve, who you may recall were on that list of four murders I mentioned that the police believed might be tied to Herb Baumeister. Three of Eiler's victims remained unidentified to this day, and one of the bodies has never been found. So, and while Eiler did not confess to it, police believe he is also responsible for the deaths of 29-year-old J. Trulon Reynolds and 18-year-old Eric Hansen. So of those four cases that I mentioned, we know Larry Eiler was responsible for two of them. What about the other two? Well, the body of Gary Davis was discovered in August 1981, and the body of Dennis Brodsky was discovered in Marion County, Indiana, on June 1st, 1982. Unfortunately, nothing else is publicly known about Gary or Dennis, but they both seem to fit the profile's of the victims of the I-70 Strangler. Investigators have also posthumously linked two more cold cases to Herb Baumeister, 27-year-old Alan Lee Livingston, who was last seen August 6, 1993, the same day that known Herb victim Manuel Resendez disappeared. They said they've linked him. I don't know how, if they've found specific DNA or whatever, But I find it fascinating that two of them went missing on the same day. Yeah. I don't know how he managed that. But also potentially connected to Herb is the disappearance of 34-year-old Jerry Williams Comer, who disappeared on August 8th, 1995. Jerry's car was later found abandoned at Castleton Square Mall in Indianapolis. Both Alan and Jerry were seen last seen in downtown Indianapolis. Neither have been seen or heard from since. Sadly, it is more than possible that both are victims whose remains were discovered on Herb's property. Also, while I was searching through missing person databases for young men who went missing in that area around that time frame, um, there were three that I believe could be added to the list of uh, potential victims. 
My main reason for adding them is simply because they were young males who went missing from Indianapolis in the early 90s. And sadly, there is not a lot of public information about any of them. But 26-year-old Robert Houck was last seen leaving his father's house October 1st, 1990. 28-year-old Mark Tomic was last seen March 5th, 1992. And 24-year-old Montario Holder was last seen October 25th, 1994. None of these three men have been seen or heard from since. Now, I know that I have thrown a lot of names at you in this episode. So I want to take a moment to look at a potential timeline of Herb's crimes. Now, keep in mind, for the sake of this timeline, I'm also going to include the crimes that Herb was accused of, but were never proven, like the I-70 Strangler murders and the three missing persons cases that I just mentioned. I just thought it would be interesting to kind of see it all visually of what was happening in Herb's life at the time versus when these murders were occurring. So I present to you a small chart. Technically, it's two charts. I feel warm. (laughs) I'm really excited about this. Now, the part that bugs me is I don't have exact dates for certain things, uh, which really just mucks with my chart's efficiency. But we have to make the best of it. On a brighter note, it's color-coded, which adds an element of fun to those like me who like office supplies. And for those who are listening and not watching, I will post the charts, or charts, uh, I should say, because there are two, uh, on our socials at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram and Facebook and maybe on Twitter at Not Detectives. Uh, we'll see. So, I love that I just have so many papers now. We're going we're gonna to move this so I can make sure. So, I've color-coded things. So, I have uh, a key, one may call it. Uh, for the yellow highlighted are the I-70 Strangler victims. The blue highlighted are Herb's known victims. The green are the possible ones that the police think. And the pink are the missing cases that I think could be connected So we're just going to, oh boy, we're going to start at the top. Oh, good Lord. So, 1979, as far as I know, there were no murders, but that was the year uh, Herb's first child, Marnie, was born. Then 1980, we've got the one murder, nothing going on in Herb's life. 1981, his son was born the same year that uh, Gary Davis was murdered. Then 1982, nothing going on in Herb's life. Three murders happened that year. 1983, still nothing going on really in Herb's personal life. And there was the murder of Mick Riley. Then in 1984, Herb's third child, Emily, was born, which means, uh, I love that I'm like, which means, of course, he's not killing because he just had a third child and that's a lot to take on. I love that I'm just immediately accusing him of all of this but well yes but also you're you're building a profile because yeah the one murder that happened in 1981 when his son eric was born is not necessarily his victim it's a possible victim and i killers have patterns it is a known fact so it would make sense if the first and the third child he didn't kill those years 
I would almost bet that he that that one wasn't wasn't his victim. I also want to know, is this first one his victim? And did it start because he had the first child? I think so. Because that's that's where I'm going with this. Well, he's trying to maintain control. I've got a oh, whole thing planned. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I can't. He wait. felt like his life was getting out of control anyway. Well, of course. Yeah. Uh, 1985, there was one murder. That was when he had that DUI hit and run. Uh-huh. I hope no one was hurt in that hit and run. So do I. I. I hope it was just like a smushed another vehicle or something, but there's not really information about it. Uh, 1986 was when he had the trial for stealing his friend's car. Um, it's also when his father died, and that's another victim. But his the, the victim was in August, and his father died in November. So I don't know um, if that is anything, but in 1987 is when he got fired. There was one murder that year. The next year, he opens the save a lot. Nothing happens. So I'm wondering, did he not do any murders that year because he was too busy opening a fucking save a lot? But it's not necessarily just about being busy. It's about how in control he feels, right? So again, oh, if he was feeling sure. very powerful during that time, which you could because he if you owned were his own business, a successful business, you may yeah. not have the same level of urge. The urge doesn't go away necessarily, but it's sure. being met at least partially in another way. Sure. Because then the next year, I believe, is the year he opened the second one, and there were two. Well, and now they're going to start murders. to pick up because now it's now it's that it's like I want to feel all powerful in every way, and yeah. then I bet you oh, the next there yep we go. then they start to then pick up yeah 1990 and 1991 nothing big going on in his personal life but yet four murders over the course of those years yep then in 1992 he January they move into that new house August something I had not mentioned before his youngest brother Richard died at the age of 36. Interesting. I don't know how he died because it is not listed anywhere, but I find it interesting that that happened. There was a murder earlier that year, but his brother dies in August 1992. And in May is the first victim we know for sure the following year. Because the following year, he then murdered four people. And we know that for sure because those are remains that were found on his property. Yes. Uh, 1994, sales are decreasing at his store. His drinking is increasing. He's having marital problems. He got the DUI. Four for sure murders, potentially one more. Then in 1995, um, his license plate gets taken to the police. Police confront him. And there's only two murders so I think he realized he was about to get caught and he was spiraling. Well, also keep in mind the time of year. Yes. Because if you look through this, right from the beginning, he started June, August, June, July, June, May, August. There's a when couple of wife- couple of Octobers, but but yeah. his killing season is in the months of May to August, traditionally. With- Summer vacation when his family is exactly exactly and the later in the years it goes the more they were just gone like the entire summer exactly when he had free-for-all now this is normally the moment that i would be like okay i've shown you my chart uh we're we're moving on but i'm actually gonna save that one um i was done i had finished (laughs) this episode i had everything i felt i needed 
I had written a thing for uh, the Patreon episode that we'll do. I was ready to go. I was also like in a hurry because I was trying to get a meal plan and a grocery list and I needed to go get groceries and I was doing a whole bunch of things. So I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm good. But it didn't sit right with me. And I'm like, I just don't feel like it. I feel like something's off. So I went through databases again (laughs) when I thought I was done. I found five. Wow. One, one, I'm calling it a potential that it could be connected somehow. Um, A 52-year-old man named Ira Freeman Kemp went missing in January 1981. Uh, His remains were found in a culvert in Odin, Indiana, in April 2015. Oh, wow. Odin is 95 miles or 153 kilometers from Indianapolis. So... I've made this, I mean, this was the, I guess you could call it cheat sheet version because I made all, I'm putting all the murders and like highlighting them so I know what's what. Um, That would put two for uh, 1991. That would be, Ira would be the the first one or in 1981, sorry. Again, I don't know what time of year his son was born. I'd like to know. Well, yes, but it's also- I feel like that would help connect- this one does go against his pattern, though, because this was January. He normally was in the summers. This was an older man than he typically murdered. So Sure. But not impossible. Obviously not impossible. Well, and that's the thing. I There were some I debated based on their age. But I And never... it was also not downtown. The rest were all downtown. Right? That, is a, that is a great point. Um, and then there are four men um, who have never been found. So they're considered just missing cases. So then, of course, I'm thinking, could they be remain some of those remains that were found on the property? Um, right. There was a there was a 20 year old named Jane, Jamie Meadows who went missing again January, but 1993, where Herb had four murders occur that year already. So that would make the fifth one. Yep. Um, and visually, I will of course post. Uh, pictures of the victims but visually he was on par with what seemed to be herb's type um then missing in september 1994 uh daniel daryl standifer who was 41 years old he was last seen near a tavern again 1994 that would make it the fifth murder for him in 1994 when life was just spiraling yeah. out of control and he was losing his business, his marriage was going downhill, all of that. So I I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, then we have 26-year-old David Barlow who went missing in July 1995. I'm uncertain um, about that one mainly because David Barlow was due to appear in court in and around the time he went missing. So it's possible he went off the grid and went missing of his own volition. But it's also possible that he was just, he accepted a ride from Herb well, or the that, wrong person. It, and It fits into his killing season. So true. Yeah. Um, and then finally, uh, there's 47 year old Philip Wayne 
Gagan, who went missing October 1995 um, and was never found. Now, he is a little bit older. I mean, Otto Becker was the last I-70 victim, and he was a bit older. So Philip was older. I mean, that's the problem when you're trying to think of victims. Is there a point where he would just accept someone who is a little out of his victim preference just for the sake of this is my only option to kill? If it's, it's this guy or nothing... Is it possible he'd go slightly older? I don't know. But also October, I don't know. It feels out of his time frame. But, I mean, I'm convinced Jamie Meadows for sure. The rest of them, I don't know. Look, I just scour databases when I'm supposed to be doing uh, things in my own home. (laughs) that just aren't getting done uh the great news is i did get groceries done and uh i overpurchased on the candy probably to make up for uh all of this that i was doing but that's not the point i love it is so after all of that that we've gone through in late november 2022 the hamilton county coroner said that thanks to modern dna technology it is possible that investigators may be able to identify more victims from those 10,000 bone fragments that were discovered at Fox Hollow Farm. Less than a week later, 10 cadaver dogs were taken to the farm property where they discovered another bone. And not only that, but the dogs also hit on 20 different locations throughout the property that may contain more human remains. In July 2023, investigators announced that they had recovered two complete DNA profiles from the remains that were recovered at the property. The hope is that the families of potential victims will come forward to provide DNA samples for the sake of comparison so that those DNA profiles can be officially identified. It is estimated that Herb Baumeister was responsible for the deaths of up to 27 men. According to Tony Harris, who escaped from Herb in August 1994, Herb said the number was closer to 50. He could have also just been, you know, trying to make himself seem cool or it's probably somewhere. Whatever, the truth is probably but, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, investigators have asked people to come forward if they have a male loved one who went missing in the 80s to mid 90s in Indiana or the surrounding states. It is wild to me when someone who portrayed himself as a happy, respected family man is revealed to be a cold blooded killer. And maybe Herb wasn't the conservative family man he had portrayed himself to be. In a 1996 interview with the police, Julie said that Herb, quote, was and still is a very mean man who can do very mean things to people. Julie also described Herb as very controlling, saying that early in their marriage, Herb's mother, Elizabeth, did something. I don't know what, but she did something that angered Herb. So anger or so Herb refused to speak to his mother for four years. I would love to know 
uh, what she said, my gut says she was like, you should go get help for that. You should be seeing a doctor. And he lost it. Could have even been something more benign, though. Speculation. Yeah. Very true. Uh, In the early 90s, Herb was interviewed by a local TV station after he got upset with the local highway crews. While the crew was out painting the lines on the highway, they painted over a dead raccoon that was lying on the side of the road. Herb, who just happened to be driving behind the highway crew, witnessed the event, got out of his car, and used his Polaroid to take pictures of the poor animal. In this video interview, Herb talks about his outrage over the crew painting over the dead animal as opposed to moving the animal out of the way first. I do want to point out at one point, I mean, it's disturbing to watch him speak, but at one point he was like, they could have just got out and just kicked it out of the way. So it's just that him being like, you need to be more respectful, just kick it. Like that felt like an interesting way. But Herb's quote about that dead raccoon, quote, the poor thing deserved a better fate than that. Which is wild, coming from a man who likely murdered more than 20 innocent people. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. I have so much to say. Oh, God. I'm, I feel alive. Um, and by the way, I think the only reason why he said that the animal deserved a better better fate was because yeah. they they desecrated it by painting over it. So it wasn't like a pristine dead body. He took the picture for his own arousal. He didn't take the picture because he was outraged at what they had done. And the only reason he was upset about it was because it was like, oh, I mean, that, that dead body could have been more – could have been better to look at. Oh, Sure. My speculation, but of course, there's just going to be so many of my speculations when we come back. So hit the can, grab a drink and buckle in because I am ready to go on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Herb Baumeister case. And buckle in, everyone, because I don't know that I've ever been as excited to get to this portion of the show as I am right now. (laughs) The minute that you said urine. (laughs) That's not a statement I like. No. Yep. No. But I was like, there's something else here. 
Sure. There's something else here, which I'll get to in a second. The fact, now again, I know chasing boys around asking for a drink might be speaking to what were potentially homosexual tendencies. Um, or that's what it seems on paper. Because obviously we also know that he was obviously a closeted gay man. He was not having sex with his wife. He was targeting gay men. Sure. But I don't think that it's actually that simple. The parallels between this case and Dahmer are chilling to me. I can't believe I've never heard of this man before. There were so many things that were being said in this that I was like, wow, this is like really par- paralleling, paralleling Dahmer, who also targeted gay men, who also had serious control issues. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to pull up my notes. Yeah, I took notes in the breaks. <laughs> of course. So... Where are we here? Okay. So, urophilia, which is the, like, term for people who are turned on by urination. I just did a quick Google because I was like, I think there's something deeper here. I think there's something else going on. And that's when I found this quote that, to me, speaks to this entire thing. So, it talks about using urine as something to fetishize, as a fetishistic object, Um, To humiliate someone or to be humiliated themselves, if you're either urinating on someone to humiliate them or being urinated on to humiliate yourself. But then they said, it can also be seen as capturing the spirit of a sexual partner. And that, to me, is such a parallel with Dahmer, who Dahmer's whole thing was that he hated killing. He didn't like the killing. What he wanted was to be able to completely control somebody, which is why he did all those experiments with, like, different ways to try and keep the people alive, but completely incapacitated and paralyzed. So to me, that's about completely controlling, completely owning someone. And the idea that by potentially, I'm sorry, drinking someone's urine, you're capturing the spirit of that person. The fact that as a child, he was saying those kinds of things to me, suggests that from this early age, he was predisposed to this line. Now, I'm not saying that any child that says those things at all. No. I'm saying in the grand context of this person's life that we know, to me, that's just a fascinating thing for him to say as a child before he was hitting puberty. And well, I guess he maybe had hit puberty at that point. Excuse me. But again, as a young child, as he's experimenting with killing animals, which was, again, something that Dahmer did that a lot of killers do, um, That just, that to me is the thing. That's it. That's the like, it's got to be the connection or it's got to be a part of the connection, right? Um, Obviously, you know, there's also the idea that you get sexual pleasure from this. This article goes on to talk about the specifics that some people will engage in, which I don't need to get into. Um, It does say that it is more prevalent in men. Uh, It's also not necessarily... uh, the actual urine that can be a turn on for some men. This is just a fun fact. It can be the feeling of a full bladder. I thought that was interesting. So, again, part of urophilia can get can become. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm just scanning really quickly. Getting pleasure from doing lots of different things involving urine. One of those things is urinating in public. And we know that he was doing this as a child. He was doing this on his teacher's desks. And we know that it was him as an adult. I mean, there's no way it wasn't him of urinating on his boss's desk, right? 
So, sorry, just just making sure I'm getting the right point here. Of course. Yes. You're doing great. So, there's also the idea that you could get great anxiety if you don't engage in this behavior, that it can become a compulsion. I don't think that that's a part of this for him. I think that this just goes hand in hand with what his compulsions became. I will also say, and of course I didn't have enough time to get into the full research of this, but I know he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. I think that that's a correct diagnosis. He was also diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. I don't know about that. I think it's possible he was bipolar. And a quick Google did also bring up a case, a case report, like a science report about bipolar-induced mania and urinary incontinence. Now, I understand that those two, that doesn't mean that if you're incontinent that you're then sexually aroused by being incontinent. I'm not suggesting that. I just thought it was very interesting that like my gut instinct as someone who has absolutely no training or education in this did bring up something that connected the two things in a roundabout way, which I think was fascinating. Um, I'm going to jump around a bit now and then get back to my original point. The fact that he didn't speak to Julie for an entire year at the start of their marriage Listen, you can Google this. This is, you know, quite common. The silent silent treatment is about control. It's about controlling the other person. So to me, when we're building this case of of what he is and who he's done, that's a great way to elicit control in that household, right? The fact that he also did it to his mother for four years, it's it's just wild to me that Julie then multiple times discussed their marriage as being good. I was like, listen, Julie, the things that you've Listed here, like there's been more than a few examples of how this was a troubling marriage. You had sex six times in 25 years. He spent an entire year not talking to you. He freaked out, didn't talk to his mother for four years over something that she felt was not that large. He was, she described him as mean. She described him as doing mean things to people. But she also still describes the marriage as being good. Yeah. I wonder how bad it was at home. Because my instinct is telling me that she's covering up for him due to shame, due to all kinds of different things. It sounds to me like it was not a great relationship. But again, that's a speculation. Um, okay. Oh my God, the fact that his son found the human skull at the same age that these tendencies started for him. Oh. Yeah. Great point. The fact that his mood swings were described as hurricane level. Wowzer. Which also will bring me to my next point in a second. Oh, yes. You were like, he he targeted youngish men. And then I was like, were they gay? And then it was like, they were usually uh, seen at gay clubs or leaving gay clubs. Which, again, the Dahmer comparison is just wild. Wild to me. Again, that it feels... And, and Dahmer did talk in interviews about how he did feel great shame about being gay. And how he felt that that did... Was a part of what led him to kill. But I don't know. I don't know whether that was really... I think it's always difficult when we're relying on the words of a killer, right? Because we're relying on an, uh, sure. a, um, a narrator who's no, narrator who's known to lie. So again, it's like, I don't know. Like, it's like, do we trust Gacy when Gacy said, oh, I didn't kill those guys? It's like, oh, why would we ever believe you? So again, it's like, I don't know whether that right. was true for Dahmer or whether that was something he was kind of affixing to it after the fact. I don't know. It's hard to say. Uh, but it could have been a factor. You know, you never know, obviously. Um, now when he told Tony that he was into autoerotic asphyxiation and that he liked to watch people's eyes bulge, that made my eyes bulge because, and I cannot remember which case I was talking about, 
But there was a case where I was talking about someone who got sexual arousal out of, that's what they got the arousal out of. It wasn't the killing. It was seeing the face make that shocked look is what makes them, made this person get aroused. So I was desperately, like, quickly Googling, trying to figure it out. What was this thing? Was it someone specific I could think of? I can't. It, It was in a prior episode, I believe, or it was, I may not have talked about it, but I've read about it is my point. And then it's like, it does border on sadism, I believe, which again is obviously, you know, there's different kinds of sadism, of course, but, uh, you know, it includes different things. They they also, apparently, there's uh, sadistic personality disorder, which I had not heard of that one before. Um, but what's interesting about this is, is that it's a lot about power. It's a lot about control, obviously. But it talks about also how when people like this receive criticism, it takes away their power. And it doesn't, they're not allowed, they don't feel that they can be vulnerable with others um, as they believe that revealing intimate pieces of information about their feelings is basically like yielding power to someone else. And that to me, I found fascinating that there's a connection between sadists and a lack of ability to be vulnerable because the second you're vulnerable and you talk about your true self, you feel like you've given your power away. And how interesting that these two men, I'm using Dahmer as an example now too, and Herb, were both closeted gay men who targeted gay male victims. It's almost as though, again, they they didn't feel that they could be their true selves or tell these true things about themselves because then they'd be giving their power away. This is, again, a speculation, but this is what I do on this show. So obviously the need to control keeps them from allowing anyone to get truly cro- close to them. We know this definitely by Julie's account of her relationship. Um... If someone does try to get too close, they may use force to make sure that person is kept in their place. Uh, Using force and violence to maintain their boundaries does not cause them guilt. It can also cause them pleasure. So what's interesting here, we know his mother said something to upset him. And you were like, maybe it was him trying to get, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was actually something that was quite the opposite. And her viewed that as her trying to get close to him trying to show him love, and that was too much for him. And he was like, I have to assert my control and power. And what better way to do that than not talk to her for four years? Yeah. Fascinating. I I'm want, I wish I knew the exact time frame of when he didn't talk to her. Yeah. Because did he only start talking to her because his dad died? Could be. Or did he only start talking to her because he wanted money? To run could be to open that store, or it also could be that he had a lot of kills and was feeling really powerful, so he didn't need to continue to feel that power over her. Sure. Um, okay, some signs here. There was just some signs on this list. This is for sadistic personality disorder here, harming animals or others. We know that that's we check that box. Fascination with violence or death. We don't know, but probably inappropriate humor. I found this interesting because we know that he mm. he gave that card, which is, you know, is what it is, um, but that a lot of people felt it was very inappropriate for the workplace at that time. Um, it talks about how also these people will laugh at situations in which pain has been experienced by others and find the humiliation of others something like joyous for them. So I'm also curious about that card because he made himself a woman and someone else. I wonder if he was trying to embarrass that other person. Interesting. I'd love to know who the other person was. So would I. 
Um, they look for reasons to harm others. They lack effective empathy. I'd say that that's pretty <laughs> self-explanatory. Um, lack of concern for others' welfare. This is interesting. Altruism is considered a survival mechanism in that by helping others, we are increasing the likelihood that others will help us when we need it. Sadists do not have the drive to invest in another's welfare and do not show the desire to help others in need. That's interesting to me that that there is this mechanism like altruism can be driven in humans by the want. If I help you, then at some point, if I need help, you'll help me. So it's altruistic, but it also sure. technically comes from a place of wanting to help yourself survive. I find that fascinating. But again, these are people who don't care about that and have no desire to have that in their life. Um it also talks about sadists making fun of people they see as physically weaker uh, and then watches and shares videos of people being hurt. Again, we could go either way on that. We weren't there. We don't know. Um, all of this to say, I'm not sure, again, what the diagnosis is or what the specific thing was about the or the arousal based on that look on that, the shock on someone's face. But I feel like it does definitely probably go under the umbrella of sadism uh, and, you know which would make sense given this profile I am creating. Again, shout out to Tony. Yes, he did definitely risk himself, but in the end, getting that license plate number, they never would have, I don't know whether they ever would have gotten to him if they hadn't had that information. No. There was the only no. reason they had any of this was because of Tony. Yep. Um, the Larry Eiler case and the fact that the police mishap in mishandling searching that vehicle allowed him to go and kill a 16-year-old boy makes me want to vomit. Yep. Um, the fact that two days after Larry Eiler's death, his lawyer came forward with a list of 20 more victims he had admitted to killing to her. Here's my question. Here's yep. my question. I do believe that everybody deserves due process. It's part of how justice works, and that is absolutely the judicial system exists for a reason. Yeah. How do those defense lawyers, and I'm not talking like you're defending like tax evasion, how does a defense lawyer live with a list of 20 victims that their client told them that they killed and just live with that information? I could, yeah. uh, it would absolutely eat me alive if I knew that there's all these people who lost, families who lost loved ones and I was the gatekeeper to that information. Not in a million years. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I'd like to know how long she had the list because yeah. I know that he wanted he was so terrified of the death penalty that he was like, I'll confess to something else. If you change my thing, I'll stay in prison for life, but just don't kill me. And then it was like, yeah, here, I confess I did. I killed this guy. And then it was like, but he also had a backup list of these are the other 21 people or 17 or whatever it was that I have killed. Yeah. And I get a client attorney privilege and all of that. I get that. But it's like, wowza. That's that's a big list. I also love the choice of going public with it instead of like just taking it to the police and being like, you should be the ones going public. Yeah. I mean... It's just fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me that like 
<coughs> and maybe it was one of those things too, where that lawyer was like, I don't want this information. This is hell for me. Like maybe sure. it was an albatross. I don't know. I just don't know how I, I, I mean, I personally just could never do that kind of job where it would be like, I have to carry that kind of information. Nope. Nope. I, I just wrote down, look to the patterns. <laughs> those char- that, that chart, I, I mean, you've done amazing things on this show for three years. Nothing has ever impressed me and truly, truly got me more excited than that chart. When you see it laid out like that, the fact that I was already using terms like his killing season, I mean, I'm, I'm happy as a clam. Oh, the fact that I just wrote down your quote of look to the pattern, <laughs> look to the patterns. But it's that's I mean, again, I just I lit up when you were like, here's what it is. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the months, though. Look at the months out of the year. Look at this. Look at that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, again, I was jazzed. I'm going to look back at them now. Was there anything I forgot again, to mention? Probably not. I mean, look, the whole I am definitely more of a visual learner. Sure. And if you can add neon color to that, that's going to not only warm my heart, but it's also going to make my brain work a little better. Um, but it was seeing that, it was it was putting it together to see what was going on in regular life versus what was going on in his murdery life. Yeah. Uh, for lack of better ways. But it's the fact that if we assume the only murders that he committed were the ones we know about for sure, for sure, which we know there are so many more. We just don't know the victim's identity in those cases. But if we just look at the ones we know for sure, for sure that he did, the very first one was in May 1993. His brother died in August 1992. So it's it just feels very... After the death of his brother, then he just started killing. Although I am convinced he'd been killing for I think that, years at that point. I think this I-70 Strangler theory, <coughs> my gut is telling me that's correct. Because Especially, I mean, I know that a lot of men, a lot of bad guys, men, women, whatever, um, will strangle a person. I get that. But it's just this specific... It just feels... The MO is the same. Yeah. The killing season is the yep. same. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, the fact that they stopped, that those I-70 murders stopped as soon as he moved into a farm that was on a lot of land and we know he was burying bodies there. Yeah. I, I just I just don't think there's any way it wasn't him. And the fact, too, listen, we know that Tony, when Tony encountered him, what year was that? 94? 95? Yes. Yes. At that point, he told... Now, listen, of course, we can't trust a killer's words because they are an unreliable source. However, um, at that point, he if we're to believe he only did the killings of the bodies found on the property, he would have killed a handful of people at that point. The fact that he said 50, again, I think he was probably rounding up. But if you add in all of those I-70 victims, it does start to get to a higher number. I buy it. I buy that he killed more than those people. And I also feel like the fact that the first killing of the I-70 Strangler was in 1980, which was the year after his first child was born, I stand by that if this is someone who is sadistic, who, who has these disorders, who is strongly, strongly wanting to control everything in his life... I've never had a child, but I don't think I need to explain to you or anyone else that having a child, 
your life is not your own anymore. You're not in Correct. full control of your life anymore. So if there was a life event, now I'm not blaming this child, make that clear. Of course. We're blaming only him. But for someone who is already predisposed to having a personality disorder that involves a great need for power and control, I could see that being the thing that then encourages this person to try it for the first time. Yeah. Right? Because the other thing is, is that it could have also been, we also don't know what his sexual past was. We don't know if he was engaging in sex with men prior to then. He could have been. He Correct. could have been engaging in sex with men throughout all of this time and not necessarily killing all of them. All we know is yeah. that that's when it escalated, potentially. Right? Right? Yeah. Um. And what's interesting, too, I know there's a couple of possible victims in 81 and 82. But what's interesting, too, is if we take those off the table for a second here. First yeah. child, 79, is born. 1980, first murder. 1981, second child is born. 1982 and 83, three murders. Third child is born, no murders. Like, it just feels like it's such a direct connection in the pattern. Right. And that's not to say there couldn't have been potentially been more throughout all of these years. Of course, they could have. There could have been. But what I also find interesting, if we're going by this list, then he kills one per year, 85, 86, 87. He doesn't the year he opened the save a lot, which, again, I believe is because he was in a position of great power and control during that time. Sure. And busy. 1989, there's potentially two here on the list. 1990, potentially two to three, 91, one, 92, potentially one, but then 93, 94, 95, we're talking four, four to five a year. So it's yep. also interesting to me, to your original point, which I just took about 10 minutes to get back to, <laughs> that it definitely amped up after the death of his brother. Oh, yeah. Now, granted, there could have been people throughout that time. He could have been killing way more people, but if we're going by these lists... That's interesting to me. And then his life starts to fall apart, and that's when, like, it we really lets loose. I think also another thing about it ramping up is because the more erratic he became in life with, like, the business failing, problems with his marriage and whatever, the more time his wife and kids would spend away. Yes. Which gave him even more opportunity. And that's the other thing to remember, too, is that we can get all into the psychology of, of it, which is what I love to do. But you're right. There's also the simple answer, which is these were the times that his wife and children were away. And we knew he was taking them to the house yeah. based on Tony's account and the fact that they found yeah. all these bodies in the backyard or in the on the property. Yeah. Um, I also just want to say the mannequins set up around the pool are chilling to me, too. Only because, again, Dahmer had this fascination with wanting to keep people alive but completely parallel paralyzed. So he was in full control of them. Mm. And again, it just became like, well, killing was the way to, that he ended up having to do that. Which, again, he always said that that wasn't what he got off on. It was the control and wanting to completely control somebody. And then that's why he started eating parts of his victims is because that was a way to completely control the person, which goes back to mm -hmm. one of the first things I mentioned about the urine, <laughs> capturing the spirit of the sexual partner, capturing the spirit, right. like truly like, like in, in enveloping the whole person. I just think that the parallels are so chilling. Um, but again, the image of these mannequins all posed around 
also felt to me in some way like the idea of these like living dolls, like like that that concept of the twilight sleep or whatever Dahmer called it when he was keeping people in that between state or attempting sure. to. Um, and the fact that he said I w- he's lonely when he gets down there. I mean, it's all just so creepy. And then the question with that, too, is that it's like, did he think that that was funny? And then this fits into the, sad- the sadistic profile I was talking about, where right. it's like inappropriate humor. Pretty weird. Pretty yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean... Again, then I just wrote down, Julie, were you happy? Because, again, it's like every time we hear you quoted about this, it doesn't feel like you were happy. Um, She can't have been. But listen, my main hope here is that any of those families who lost loved ones in those years will come forward and give DNA so that hopefully, as technology is allowing um, authorities to uh, make DNA – or sorry, extract DNA from these remains, hopefully there can be matches made and then people can get some sense of – closure if nothing else even if it is yeah you know 30 years later oh yeah <coughs> it's the fact that um i had heard about this briefly i believe i first heard because i think someone uh on patreon had mentioned it to us before um and it was a case that i didn't know much about which is partially why i pushed ahead and i was like for the 80s perfect and then i started reading about him and i was like fuck all of his stuff is in the 90s, but it could have been the 80s. And so that's uh, uh, how I played this. But um, the fact that this was happening and then I find out that it's like, oh, there's they're still potentially finding more within the last year. I also can't imagine who purchased that property after. What did you look over stuff yourself. I mean, I have so many questions about, I mean, also the fact that they're just within the last like three, four months, even less, two, three months, um, that they found more DNA profiles. Well, they sent the cadaver dogs like, recently, right? Yeah, the cadaver dogs were December 2022. Right. And I'm hoping that the dogs being like, here are 20 locations you should check, which I understand it's the dogs go to a spot and do a move or however they do to signal this is it. In my brain, the dogs like literally sit in a chair like people lower their glasses and go, you're going to want to check. <laughs> like in my brain, that's how it works because that's adorable. Um, but I know it would be more like the dog goes to a spot starts barking, does whatever their signal is for, I sense human remains. Um, I'm also shocked that that many potential could have been found and that weren't found in 96, 95 when they were searching the property. Yeah. It. I mean, who knows? It's possible that the dogs are just sensing the ones that were there that many years ago, maybe? <laughs> That's possible, too. I don't too. know. Sensing. I love that I... You know what I mean. Detecting. I make it sound like they're just like, I feel it. I feel it there. Oh, my God. A show about psychic dogs. Psychic dogs? Yes. I would watch that. I would watch that. Absolutely. Oh, that's where I'm at. But you know what I mean. I do. I'm just surprised that they could find that many potential new spots. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they've searched any of them and maybe found nothing. I don't know. But I'm also – I was just – I did not go into this thinking there was going to be an update from the last within the last year. I know. 
Well, again, you've also got to wonder, too, like, if people did buy that property. Like, you got to wonder how much they had prepared themselves that it's like, hey, in 20 years, guess what? We're going to come back and investigate again. Like, oh, the second I hear a, a, a killer had this house first. Oh, yeah. And he buried victims in the backyard. No, that's a no for me, dog. Because um, I don't want my kids playing out there. No, with the thought of here's a skull. Isn't this a weird rock? That's a tooth. You know what I mean? Like I no, no judgment to whoever did purchase the place because I am assuming it was a it was like a big, very I mean, I've seen photos. It was a very lovely property. I just hope they got a real good but, deal is my point. I don't oh, think a real they had good deal. To have. Yeah, there was no way they could have sold it otherwise, I would think. Yeah, I would think not. And then I feel bad for the wife because then it's like, look what position she's left in. That was her house. And it's like, well. Unless she stayed. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I know she at some point did leave and went back to the, I think they ended up somehow buying the house they lived in when they first got married. Like after his oh, death. Oh, the kids at some point. I don't know when they moved. But they moved fairly. Oh, they would have moved fairly early because she mentioned it in 1996. So Don't you love. Moved, I don't know how they ended up back at that same house though. But also like, do you really want the memory of your serial killer dead husband? Like, I don't know that I want to go back to a place where it was like, remember this house, children, yeah. where we lived with father before he was caught killing? Like, I don't know if that's... Oh, yeah. I mean, the place where he didn't talk to me for a year. For a year. That's wild. Yeah. I wonder also if that corresponded with, with having that baby. Having the first baby. Interesting. Him feeling like he's completely lost control. I would be very curious about what year in their marriage that happened. And if it, co oh, if it yeah. oh, corresponded. Are you kidding me? It's all I want to know. Yeah. I want to know exact times of year the children were born. I want to know all of these things. But I understand that they, you know, Of course. They and that's their prerogative. As yeah. possible. Of course. Um, but just for me, like for my charts. And for my profile. <laughs> <laughs> I like when we border onto... Uh, <laughs> the whiny six-year-olds with the but my chart in my profile <laughs> oh like i like that i, I like when we get there i do too yeah um christy oxborough i never think that you can continue to raise your own bar <laughs> i never think that i will i will have an episode that makes me even more riveted than the last and here we are i mean my own bar at this point is made out of sharpie and highlighters and we're all better for it. Um, honestly, though, this this just it brought me to life again. Um, and I, I know people are like, ooh, obsessed with serial killers. And I'm like, it really is. If anybody can't psychology. tell, it's the psychology of it for me. It is the psychology of it. I just am fascinated. I always have been and I always will be. Um, because, again, it's just something that I can't ever wrap my head around. I, I don't kill bugs. I, I prefer not to. Um, sure. I don't like it. So again, it's like, yeah, the whole concept of these these crimes just fascinates me. Um, but fantastic work, a serial killer special, and I could not be prouder. Oh, 
Well, that is high praise. Listen, I... I love this episode. And we thank you, dear <laughs> listeners, for being here with us. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives, and as we've been mentioning, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails uh, for more information about our subscription-based service over there. And of course, the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out already if you haven't uh, and you're interested. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Hillsong. After we did the Duggars, we got an influx of people asking if we were ever going to do Hillsong. And guess what? We are. We are. So stay tuned for that. If you don't know what we're talking about, don't worry. We'll get you up to speed. But I'll also give you two words. Bieber Church. There, I said it. Oh. Yeah, it was his church. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, he was a member of the church. Was it? Mm-hmm. I love, I love again that you, <laughs> again, because she hasn't started her research yet. Yeah. I have no concept. Yep. No concept. Again, I literally finished this one this afternoon because I couldn't stop. Yep. Well, you got to stop at some point. When we s- pause recording, I'll give you a little bit of a background there. Um, uh, can't wait. It's one of the few things I know about. Uh, anyway, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Cheddar Bob. Oh, good night, Burt McCracken. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.